Welcome to this week's Treasury Career Corner podcast, where I interview treasury professionals about their treasury careers. Each and every week, I talk to treasurers about how they built their careers, where they are now, and where they see both themselves and the treasury profession going to next. In this week's show, I'm delighted to be joined by Stephen Coffold, the Senior VP and Treasurer at Allegan. Now, Allegan, a global pharmaceutical company focused on developing branded pharmaceuticals, devices, biologic, surgical, the lot, all in the medical products world for patients around the world. Now, again, Stephen will actually explain that a little bit more later on the show. As always, each show, we're going to leap straight in. You know, Steve, take me back, if you like, how you first ever discovered treasury back at the beginning we'll go through and then we'll talk about your views on the future of treasury and everything else but let's perhaps go back to your degree days and how you discovered the wonderful world of treasury as it were over to you sure thanks mike and first thanks for the invite to uh participate in this and i really look forward to the conversation you know regarding undergraduate school i was a business undergraduate with a concentration in economics and finance, had a lot of accounting classes, advanced accounting, cost accounting, but I knew deep down I didn't want to be an accountant. And I really liked the finance aspect of it. You know, I was kind of following the stock market and so forth. So I wanted to do something, you know, on that spectrum, whether it be in Wall Street or working for a corporation. So, you know, it may sound corny. And if you looked at my first resume out of uh, undergraduate school, you know, it would have said to get a job into treasury. Took me a few years. You know, I started out as a credit analyst, or actually I started working out in consumer finance for a U.S. bank, which is no longer around security. Pacific and then moved over to AT&T Credit Corporation as it was known at that time as a credit analyst. There was a treasury job for a treasury analyst opening up. This was in January of 1988 and uh, jumped at the opportunity and uh, been glad ever since. And then you sort of made some good early moves within treasury. Talk me through the development for you. You know, you said, well, it's amazing. You know, I've not heard of many people. A lot of the time we say people accidentally discover treasury but you had this drive towards treasury which which is unusual in itself but how did you then grow your treasury career did you then choose each of the roles saying i want to build out on this or what happened Sure. As we thought about Treasury back in those days, and you know, I attribute a lot to the leaders that I had, it was important for people to rotate through the various different Treasury roles. So, for example, in cash management, a lot of times when we hired people into Treasury, that's where they started. We kind of viewed that as a good foundation, you know, cash management, bank accounts, and understanding all that. And after that individual spent some time in there, then it was moving into one of the other roles within Treasury, whether it was on the capital market side, which was really the debt execution, FX hedging, whether it was in securitization, we were as a leasing company, that was one of our financing tools. So we took the opportunity to rotate people through the various different uh, disciplines within treasury. So really creating a a well-rounded treasury professional. You know, they may not be an expert in everything, but again, they're grounded in all those different functions. Again, when we get later on the show, we'll talk about technology and the future of Treasury. And I've talked to people in previous shows about, you know, wire transfers and, you know, fax machines and things. Obviously, Treasury's evolved over the time. But when you first started, when I first started recruiting in it, it was quite different at the beginning. And it wasn't something that you sort of, when you're maybe interviewing one of those cash guys, you weren't saying, right, which the systems have used or everything else. But how have you seen that sort of evolve since your early days? 
it's night and day difference. <laughs> I mean, I remember, you know, again, there wasn't really much in the way of bank systems back then. Again, from a cash management perspective, you would be using, you know, whoever your lead bank's system was to release wires. Again, it was very primitive. A lot of times it was through phone calls to the bank. I remember on commercial paper, we were a big commercial paper issuance. And, you know, those days trades would settle by runners uh, running trade tickets back and forth. So, and today, you know, you kind of fast forward, you know, everything now is done either through Bloomberg terminals, whether it's trading FX, so you're no longer getting FX traders on the phone. So it's really leveraging technology today. I mean, so it's really a world difference from when I started. And when you did start, so you made those moves, was it a very planned progression? Did you think, right, you know, now I've been system manager, now I want to do the corporate financing, now I'm going to do global fund. You know, you were looking to that as you were sort of filling out the gaps in your resume. In your Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And and probably one of the things I regret was not taking an overseas role, even though that I had responsibility for international treasury. It was really all managed out of the U.S. I mean, for example, back in the 90s, we actually started an Australian commercial paper program, and we would actually trade that from the U.S. So we had no people on the ground in Australia. We would be in the office, Australian hours, placing that paper. So as I progressed through my career and eventually became an assistant treasurer, now you say, okay, Steve, what's next? Do I want to stay in treasury? Do I want to go into another finance role, whether it's in business development, whether it's in financial planning and analysis, or do I want to become a treasurer? Now, at the time, uh, the person who I reported to, who was treasurer, wasn't much older than I was. Mm. And that individual was committed to the company. And again, for family reasons, it was working for them. So I really didn't see them moving on. So then, you know, what do I do? Do I now just stay at AT and hopefully things work out within the company? And again, there's no guarantee that, you know, if that person decided to move on, that I was going to get the nod and that they weren't going to bring somebody in from the outside. And that's when I took the opportunity when it rose of a much smaller company, that being Virgin Mobile, who was looking for a treasurer. They were building out their infrastructure because they were transitioning from a joint venture to a public company. And I said, hey, here's the opportunity to get the treasurer's title. And secondly, here's an opportunity to work on an IPO. And I think from a treasury perspective, that's one of the things that you know a treasurer or a treasury professional would love to have on their resume is the opportunity to take a company public. And, and certainly, as you know, Mike, those opportunities are far and few between. Yeah. And when you were sort of convincing them that you were the that beauty parade of people, what did you do to enhance yourself i was talking to a couple of clients just recently or candidates rather recently and they were like oh what do you think of my resume and i was like it's great really fills out you know ticks a lot of boxes however this client these are their pain points the you know you need to highlight this or bring this out you know so people often say to me oh what's my resume like and stuff so look it's a great building block but this is going to be their issues now as you said you've not been through an ipo before but they were like right we're going to ipo it's great attractive to you but what was sure. your convincer to them what was saying oh yeah but why are you the best person then Sure. I think, you know, when you looked at going from the CIT group, and again, we could talk about 
the various acquisitions, what led from AT&T credit to be the CIT group. Virgin Mobile was a much smaller company, 425 people. So it was very important important that, you know, the people that were being brought on demonstrated some skills. One, they were very well-rounded. So as I view it from a treasury perspective, having spent time on cash management in the capital markets, international, you know, so it kind of gave me that broad-based treasury background. Okay. So that was a skill sets or skill sets that I brought to the table. And what was also important too, is from a personality perspective and also demonstrating that, you know, you're a team player and, you know, you're, and again, it's more of an entrepreneurial type of spirit they were looking for at that point. And it's really, again, drilling down on teamwork and being, you know, not afraid to roll up sleeves and help out wherever you can, you know, to move the ball forward. So I think it's a combination of the, the skill set, even though I didn't have the IPO, I had the capital markets experience, and then also the teamwork aspect. And talking about team, so, you know, probably a bigger team that you were leaving to then, was it just yourself when you first started there or how was it sort of structured? Sure. When you think about it, when I moved on from the CIT, probably at the time we had about 40 people within Treasury. You know, the biggest, let's say 20 of that or a little over 20 of that would have been on the securitization side, whether it was on the execution or the reporting that goes along with securitization that had to be done on the monthly basis, uh, the monthly securitized reports. When I went to Virgin Mobile, we were a total of two people myself and in one other person. Oh, wow. Okay. So it's a big night and day difference. But again, you know, for me, that carrot was the treasurer's job and then also picking up that new skill of, you know, the IPO. And certainly, you know, kind of fast forward today to Allergan, when you look at the treasury organization here, including my admin, we are a total of eight people. So I think, you know, I've heard benchmarks and, and Mike, you probably know more about it than I do, but, you know, People say the benchmark is about one treasury person per billion of revenue, and yeah. our revenue is a little over, uh, you know, twelve and a half billion today. So it's it's been a very lean operation. Just going back to you, you dropped from that forty to two, and it was like, right, it's your lunch break now. No, your lunch break. Exactly. So you, was, <laughs> you know, and again, we'll have listeners to the show who are in that situation or make. How did you cope? How did you manage? What were your, you know, you're blocking and tackling, but how are you doing it? What What are your key things that you're trying to make sure where you don't drop the ball when you when you move into that? I know you'll have your priority list, but how do you drive the treasury forward towards that IPO? Yeah, I mean, it was... A lot of long hours, you know, I won't kid you on that because it was also interesting at that time because the JV partners, and you hear about this a lot of companies too, so it was really kind of a dual track. It was exploring taking the company public as well as through a sale through a private sale. So, you know, the challenge was two different banks leading both processes. So as you're working on the S1 filing and getting that filed, the other banks chopping at the bit to get on your calendar to get the pitch books together, get the information together for the private sale. So, you know, when you get the initial S1 filed and you usually have about 30 to 60 days, you're waiting for SEC comments, you know, that's usually a time to decompress. You know, unfortunately, the day we got the S1 filed, 
the next day, boom, now we're dealing with the other bank on the, the private sale. So it's being able to multitask, I think, at the end of the day. And, you know, if you're doing a job that you love doing, and, and certainly, you know, that's and may sound corny, but, you know, I really don't look as treasury as a job, you know, and it's something I enjoy doing. You don't mind taking on those additional hours and, you know, whether it's working in the office or working at home at night just to get the job done. Went through the IPO, as you say, immediately thrown into the other deep end and things, but you, you're obviously swimming through that period. But how did then the role evolve as a, and would you contrast the sort of private to the PLC environment and the demands on you as a treasurer? Well, I mean, I think, so if I follow you correctly, I mean, again, going from the Virgin Mobile which was a private company, which was an interesting prospect because, you know, you have two masters, you know, you have both JV partners. And again, this was a joint venture between Sprint and and the Virgin Group out of the UK. So they both have their own priorities and so forth. So it's really kind of managing their expectations and their deliverables. And then certainly going to, you know, Allergan, when I joined the company, it was known as Watson Pharmaceuticals which was a Corona, California-based U.S. generic company that I never heard of. Mm. And mm. when Virgin Mobile was sold, the Sprint decided to uh, to purchase us. My manager of IR then moved to Watson, and I said to her, where are you going? And I'm like, I've never heard of the company. They're in New Jersey. <laughs> you know, I made the transition then because they were looking to put in place the infrastructure. Believe it or not, the person at the time, and this was a company with about $2 billion of revenues, you had the person who was a CFO. He was a controller. He was the head of tax. He was the head of business planning. Treasury was really a part-time job between himself and the head of FP&A. However, with the new CEO they bought on several years earlier, you know, he wanted to really take the company to be international. And to do that, you need to have the infrastructure in place. You needed to have a controller. You needed to have a treasurer. You needed to have a head of tax and so forth. And that was my door, you know, that I was able to come through. And, you know, thankfully, you hear a lot about pharmaceutical companies that they like to hire within the industry. But at least with Watson, you know, they were open-minded to individuals from outside of the pharma industry. And you walked in the door. It's, well, you've just des- described it was, uh, well, at least it was a blank sheet of paper. You, you could make yes. it up as you went it, along. So, yeah, what was it that was. Like? It was. It was. And then, you know, this was back in 2010. And then we did our first large acquisition, which was in uh, 2012. We actually closed it during Hurricane, I believe it was Hurricane Sandy on November 1st of 2010. You know, that was an acquisition that, you know, probably in fruition took about a year or so as we worked through due diligence, doing the analysis and so forth. And at the time, you know, as I mentioned, this was a Corona, California-based team. I was in New Jersey. The rest of my treasury team, you know, which was about four people, were in Corona, California. And, you know, I didn't see them for 12 months. So it was very important to have some really good people and fortunate you know, I did uh, inherit a very good treasury team because I didn't see him for 12 months as I was working on that acquisition. And then if you asked me at that time, I would have said, hey, it would have been another two years for the next acquisition. But, uh, you know, I would have been wrong because it was almost every year on the Every year on the year, we are acquiring somebody, whether it was in 13, it was Warner Shilcott, 14, it was Forrest, 15, it was Allergan. We changed our name to Allergan at that Mm. point. Mm. And then 
you know, I thought at that point, because the Allergan acquisition was $72 billion, okay, we would be done. Lo and behold, we announced then we were selling our generic business, the Teva, for $40 billion, and potentially at, we were going to merge the rest of the business with Pfizer. So if you mm. think about it, we had three things going on at one time, the integration of Allergan, the divestiture of the generic business, and potentially the merger of the rest of the business with Pfizer. So let alone... Each one of those is a major transaction, but we had three of them going on at the same time. Talk us through the people aspects of that. So the people transition, you said you were East Coast, your other four guys were over in Corona and you were managing it then across there. But, you know, how has it transitioned and what have you been like as a, you know, manager, director of those people, you know, both the experience of doing it remotely, even though it's, you know, one coast of the US, the other, at least you're nearly in the same time, you know, only three or four hours time-wise, but what's it been like? Sure. Sure. And, you know, I was on the East Coast because, as I mentioned, you know, there was a new CEO. He lived in the, on the East Coast. And, of course, as you know, my headquarters is wherever the CEO is. Yeah. So East Coast was the administrative headquarters. A lot of our finance function was still on the West Coast. However, after that activist acquisition in 2010, the decision was to migrate the headquarters to the East Coast. So, you know, unfortunately, I did lose some good people. I was able to reach retained one and I still have her today. She's been with the company for over 25 years and does the work of 10 people. You know, it was hope, then hiring new well, people in, in here that, on the in, the in that case, I hope she's listening. You're paying her 10 times as much. I mean, yes. obviously... <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'll give. I'll even give her a shout out, Debbie Wong. So she is a phenomenal employee, and you know a lot of the success of this company is is due to her and uh, the other individuals of the treasury team. What's the key to her success? Why is she so successful? Well, again, I think she's another person who loves Treasury and mm-hmm. loves the work that we do. And I think, you know, when you look at Treasury, Treasury really has, you know, a front row seat to a lot that goes on within the business, whether it's on the business development side, working on uh, due diligence, working on integration. So it's a good place to be at the core of the company. So mm-hmm. I think that's that what drives a lot of people who, uh, who like Treasury. I think, you know, viewing Treasury from out Outside, even business units or even other groups within finance, you know, who may be adjacent to where the Treasury group sits is they view Treasury as a black box. They're not sure what it, what exactly goes on within uh, Treasury. And, and that's what kind of puts the onus on us to take the opportunities as other groups say, hey, can you come into my team meeting, spend 15, 20 minutes, you know, talk about Treasury, you know, what do you guys actually do? You know, how can we help you? And again, this gives us the opportunity to present to them, educate them. And so, as I said, 15, 20 minutes, usually these conversations turn into be 40 minutes, 50 minutes. We run out of time and, you know, people walk away with a different impression of uh, Treasury and we kind of look to partner with these business units to move the ball forward. Yeah, I've, and I've spoken recently to Severin from European Treasurer over at Honeywell. And one of the, she does a very similar thing, and, and in a way, she also takes it out to the masses in a little way. She sort of lectures at a local university or engages with the guys there to sort of educate those guys, and then gets her junior employees a lot of the time from there. I've told her to stop doing that because we are a treasury recruitment company. We do need the employees, <laughs> so we tried to stop yep. that, put a lid on that. But then again, one of the other things, just like yourself, and I'm just going to ask you. 
she's then also by involving so many other people like the finance analysts and things whenever one of her vacancy comes up she doesn't even have to go on to linkedin she just puts it on the internal job board and they've got people knocking at the door saying oh can i apply do you find that as well yourself I have not lost anybody from a from a treasury perspective. Debbie, who's on the West Coast, has been with the company for 27 years. The rest, two of my treasury folks, have been with me since 2010. As I hired them, as as I mentioned earlier, as we moved the treasury and the finance functions from the West Coast to the East Coast, mm-hmm. you know. So I haven't been. I haven't had really to experience you know, replacing people and having to go out and hire people, you know, to replace people who have left. I did hire several years ago a treasury analyst. That was a person straight out of college, uh, no treasury experience, dual major, uh, both economics and psychology. And again, this was an opportunity to bring in a very junior person, kind of put them through the same paces, as I mentioned earlier, you know, starting out in cash management, taking advantage of opportunities, whether it's now FX. So this person is actually doing the FX trading for us on Bloomberg, also getting involved in systems. Since it's been relatively quiet on the acquisition front and integration, which, you know, you can imagine is always just a constant state of change as you're Mm -hmm. integrating businesses and so forth, bringing on treasury technology. So for example, example, um, you know, a year, year and a half ago, we we brought on Quantum and we're implementing that. So this individual now is working on that as well. And if you think about it, in about three years time frame, coming in with no treasury experience, very good understanding of cash management actually is leading up our FBAR, which is the foreign bank accounting uh, reporting that we need to do here in the U.S. You know, he's working with our outside consultants in doing those reports. He's now doing FX trading on Bloomberg and also on the technology side, um, the quantum implementation. So it's really, you know, instead of trying to micromanage folks, is really empowering people and letting them run with the ball. And, you know, again, I think that's what makes it interesting for, for the folks as well, because always in a constant state of learning, always learning something new. And when you say learning, so what, just you've got the system side, you've got the sort of development for them. Where are you seeing mm-hmm. the team develop? Is it just that they're sort of taking on more responsibility, different areas, or how's it been evolving, sort of thing? It hasn't been dull around here. Yeah. In that, you know, when we sold the te- you know the generic business to Teva, and and you know we got in approximately forty billion dollars of proceeds for that. Right. So. Up until that point in time, and I think you know this is going back to my leasing company days, and the CEO pounding on the table saying, you know, cash is an inefficient asset. You know, we should be running the tanks dry and so forth. You know, we were managing the company with about five hundred million dollars of cash globally. Now you wake up and the next day you come in and now you got twenty-eight billion dollars of cash. Uh, you know, most companies grow into that cash over time, so you're able to, you know, put in policies, put in procedures and build out an infrastructure to manage that amount of cash. It was really for us a flip of the switch. You know, five hundred million one day, twenty-eight billion the next day, and now, you know, you want to get that cash invested, maximize the yield, again, certainly not risking the principal. So again, that was a whole new opportunity for folks. 
mm. to learn and a whole new part of the business. So it's always been something fresh. And then, you know, taking the rest of the proceeds, thinking about capital allocation, you know, are we going to declare a dividend? Are we going to do stock uh, repurchases, managing that? And then we also had a position in Teva shares that once the lockup uh, expired, having to liquidate those shares. Mm. So it really wasn't, all right, here's the same treasury functions that we're doing day in, day out for the last nine years. But as this company continued to evolve, it's new areas, whether it, like I said, managing large cash balances, stock repurchases, selling stock, dividends, and so forth. And looking at that evolution, you know, and of the team as well and things like that, we've touched on, you've got a new system coming in there. You've got all these new things. Where do you see the evolution of the treasury. Everyone's going on about, you know, all the latest conferences, oh, AI and robotic learning and everything else. But, you know, is that the core of things that, you know, automate as much as you can, get get rid of the labor stuff? And there's the oh, labor uh- intensive, but, you know. I think you're absolutely right, Mike. I think that's where it's heading, the use of robotics, uh, AI. I think, you know, Treasury is going to become more digitized as we get into the digital world and so forth. And it's really looking at those type of, you know, functions or areas really to automate as much as you can, especially the low-hanging fruit and, the you know, the non-value-added aspects of Treasury, whether it's you know, consolidating uh, bank statements and so forth, which then gives the ability for Treasury to really focus on the value add. Mm. And at the end of the day, I believe, you know, the only way Treasury is successful or how to how to judge a Treasury team is, is the group adding value to the business? Mm. Just take it back a stage and looking at you, say, in your Virgin Mobile, as we talked about, is you and one other, and there'll be people mm-hmm. listening today that there's there, you know, that's them and one other, and then, you know, we've talked a lot of these shows about, you know, bringing some technology and do all this, and then the guys are like you, they're all, or you know, as you were back in, you know, ten years ago, it's just them, and they go, hang on, I don't want to add another two or three hours to my day to get this technology implemented or and you talk about the low hanging fruit how do those guys do it you know what 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 sort of if they're listening and you're thinking guys this is what i would do you know they're blocking and tackling what what sort of advice would you give to them well i mean certainly undertaking any type of system implementation it's very hard for a treasury group to do it by itself Mm. okay you know it has to be sponsored by the executive management the cfo in particular of the company you need to have it support and especially in this day and age you know with internal control socks and so forth you need the accountants you need the tax folks you need the sarbanes oxley folks you need the internal auditors you need the external auditors so you know i wouldn't recommend a treasury group saying hey we're going to go and implement a now a new treasury system you're not going to be able to do it by yourself you need to have the buy-in of all the various disciplines within the company, and that's the only way you're going to be successful. And we had that support here within Treasury. So right from the CFO, as we prioritized what we're going to do from a technology perspective within the finance organization, the Treasury system was one of two systems that had that sponsorship. And that's critical because I've also been part of system implementations you know, in prior careers, which never got out of the starting gate because, again, the support wasn't there. 
yeah, you need everyone pointing that right direction and everything else. So, yeah, and I think you know, from an individual perspective too, as you start implementing these systems and and you're seeing, hey, wow, this is pretty cool. This is making my job more efficient and so forth. It's really you, you see the benefits of that, so you don't yeah. mind putting in the sweat equity. And just looking to the future, less about the stuff that you're looking at now, you know, the AI and all that. You know, in Europe, everyone's gone on about Brexit till the cows come home. No one's, everyone's bored of it now. Move on. In the US, there are different challenges, you know, political and economic and everything else. But what are you looking at as a treasurer? You're thinking, right, these are the things on the horizon. A lot of the time, the CFO is probably pushing you forward. And we've heard that a lot from treasurers that, you're the front man. You're like, right, off you go, Steve, look at all this stuff. You know, what are they saying to you? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, from a, a treasury perspective, it, and, you know, the conversations I've had with the CFO here, you know, it's really about capital allocation is extremely important. And how are we deploying our cash? How are we investing in the business? If we are divesting of an asset, well, and let's say it's an accretive asset from an EBITDA perspective, taking a look at, okay, what are we going to do with that proceeds? Is it going to be invested back into a business development opportunity? Are we going to buy in stock from a dilution to manage dilution? Uh. Do we want to pay down debt? And, you know, one of the focuses for us is because of all the acquisitions that we've done, you know, we over the years have taken on, our debt balances have grew dramatically. Leverage went up, you know, close to at 1.4 times, which was a little bit above what our ratings would dictate. Uh. So it was very important for us as we thought about you know how we redeployed the, the capital really deleveraging the balance sheet you know to address stakeholder concerns whether it was debt holders equity holders or the various rating agencies again that's where the focus has been for us is really on the capital allocation okay as we come towards the end of today's show as we do every week we'll put the LinkedIn profile for yourself into the show notes so people can sure. connect with you if you want them and and ignore them if you do you know don't that's fine but you look back over it and you know I think a lot of people will look at your profile and see wow that's a you know great progression we've really got into some of the nuts and bolts there but what advice are you going to give to the analysts the managers you know maybe even some of your peers if you like that if they look sure. at you know what well, I want to be similar to that I want to have the same profile what what the nuggets of advice you give to people as we wrap up today's show? What would you say? Sure. I mean, when I started in Treasury, I'll let you do the math or I'll let everybody else do the math again, starting in January of 1988. Yeah, you go. You're good at math. Back in those days, you know, a lot of times from a career perspective, it was cradle to grave with one company. That has changed dramatically. And, you know, we didn't talk about all the different ownership changes that we went through. And it almost seems like, you know, five years in one job is a lifetime. You know, unfortunately, I think at the end of the day, I mean, we all become contractors at the end of the day. And it's important that as individuals progress from a career perspective, you know, they're really thinking about fulfilling or filling out that resume, taking advantage of opportunities within the company. You know, when somebody comes to you and say, you know, Steve, we want you to spend some time in cash management. And some people may think that cash management is not the exciting part of Treasury because I think if you give people most choices, they want to be on the capital market side, dealing with the banks and so forth. And But 
I think they would be doing a disservice if they're not taking advantage of those opportunities and really kind of having that solid foundation from a treasury perspective. And then sometimes, you know, in my case, I had to make the jump from the CIT group to Virgin Mobile to get that treasurer's title, to get the experience of taking the company public, which I would not have had within the CIT group. That, you know, sometimes you may need to take a look outside the company, take that risk, take that leap of faith, knowing at the end of the day that you're going to be better off at the other end, no matter how that opportunity to turn out, because now you're adding new skill sets to your career development. And again, that's just going to make you more valuable as as you progress and pursue other opportunities. So a portfolio of skills is what you're aiming for. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Even though while I had international experience, you know, I never, and, you know, again, a little late in life and, you know, with family commitments and so forth. But if you're starting out and there's an opportunity to take an international assignment for a year or two and you have that flexibility, you know, that's something that everybody should take advantage of. Yeah, fill in all the gaps as well. Well, thank you, sir. Great advice as always. Again, everyone connect to Steve, you know, grow his LinkedIn profile. Hope you enjoyed today's show. I definitely enjoyed it It was great fun and uh, well we'll keep talking to Steve in the future as, as his co- career continues to grow but thanks for your time today and look forward to seeing you soon over in the US great thanks Mike appreciate the time thanks very much sir